Hey all, this is Ryan and you are listening to the Fortune Teller Podcast. Today we have Sid Powell, the co-founder and CEO of Maple Finance, an under-collateralized lending marketplace for institutional loans. Welcome to the podcast, Sid. Let's, uh, let's start by having you introduce yourself and share some of the background story of how you got into the crypto and DeFi space. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Really glad to uh, really glad to be here. So, uh, my my background begins in traditional finance. I used to work in banking and mortgage and asset backed securities. So I would help companies to raise debt by setting up securitization programs so they could grow their lending businesses. And then I was always more fascinated with you know what it would take to build a business. So I then went and joined a commercial lending fintech a few years ago. And uh, and ran their treasury department and helped them you know help help them raise debt to uh, to expand. Uh, it was in that time that I started learning more about Ethereum and uh, started thinking about a way you know a way to to manage debt and uh, and help businesses expand using using smart contracts to manage that uh, that lending and, and that debt. And that was really the kernel of the idea that became Maple. So I met my co-founder there. Uh, we planned uh, planned the concept for Maple uh, for quite a while. And then what we have now built is, as you said, an institutional marketplace uh, for capital built on the Ethereum blockchain. So we help uh, crypto native companies who have very strong reputations, who are profitable, who have great balance sheets uh, to borrow under collateralized loans so that they can invest in the expansion of their business. And while you're working on corporate debt, um, from the traditional world and coming from that side of traditional finance, what inspired you to start something of your own? What gave you the inspiration to start a startup? Yeah, I think I've always been interested in in builders and entrepreneurs, and I think you know coming coming from coming from banking, you're you're exposed to to the startup scene and and, and the financial world, uh, but I never really saw uh, huge financial innovation until blockchain. And I think, uh, you know, as, as we started to learn more about Ethereum and smart contracts, uh, we could see that there was a clear opportunity here uh, to, to have a massive impact on the financial system. And what really excites me about DeFi and doing a startup in DeFi is that uh, you, have the, you have this ability to, to impact a global network and that leads to nonlinear outcomes, and so I think the what what can what can start small in the DeFi space has this potential to be you know to turn into huge uh, huge um, uh, protocols or companies. And so I think that was what it was that size of opportunity that initially attracted me. Uh, but then also it was just by personality I've always wanted to to do my own thing uh, to build a team, and I've always been interested in you know ideas like management, building high-performing teams, business strategy. And really one of the only ways you can do that is to go and start your own startup. So, yeah. There's something really uh, rewarding and addicting with the idea that what you deliver to the community can scale overnight. And I think that was a lot of the inspiration during the early kind of dot-com days where people could build a social network and all of a sudden, because it's online, one friend could invite another friend and you have that growth factor. And you're completely right in that kind of kernel with money and finance 
we're only experiencing it for the first first time ever that you could have liquidity pools that go from ten thousand dollars to a hundred million in the course of two days, which is possible in DeFi. And that's that's so rewarding of a concept for any builder in the space. And as you as you thought about the smart contracts on Ethereum while you were still working at at the debt financing startup that you're talking about, what I guess what inspired you to take that that first that leap going from something secure in the traditional world to saying I'm going to do the entire plunge into the the world of smart contracts? Yeah, <laughs> that. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult question to answer because I think it's unique to to everybody who who decides to take that plunge. But for me, uh, I've, for me, there's there's this quote uh, quote from a Shakespeare play actually that's always resonated with me, which is that you know there, there's a tide in the affairs of man, and taken at the flood leads on to to greatness and to opportunity. I think it was Julius Caesar, uh, the Shakespeare play. But I saw this tremendous opportunity and. Uh, I, you know, I could see that this is basically the internet of finance and, you know, could, could therefore see how large the opportunity was. And so I looked at, you know, I, I, I looked across and I, and, uh, I, I thought, you know, I would regret it if I just, if I didn't take the plunge. So for me, it was really more a pull factor. Like I always knew that looking forward 20 years, it, it was going to be risky, but that if I didn't take, uh, if I didn't take the plunge and leave TradFi for DeFi, that I would always regret it. And that actually what you perceive of as risk, like, you know, I do a startup and I fail and then I have to go back and get another job. Well, the worst that can happen is really not that bad. Tim Ferriss talks a lot about fear setting. And I think, you know, when you when you accept that that downside is actually not that bad, uh, it becomes almost a no-brainer to go and take opportunities like this. So you're, you're touching on the topic of silent risk as well, where if you stay mm. in your current moat, there is unaccounted for risk that you're not looking at, such as what are the yeah. macro events that could happen? Could we get hit by a global yeah. pandemic, which has cut out many jobs in the last year and a half? Uh, yeah. People don't think about that when they join the traditional yep. sector. They think, I have, a, I have a bond. I have a nice paying job. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and you're not really in control of your own life or destiny when you do that. So you take the security, uh, you take the security of that semi-known future uh, because you prefer that to the risk of the unknown future in, in, in working at a startup. Uh, but actually at a startup, you're far more in control of your own destiny. You know, you, you, it's effectively success. Um, Aside from some element of luck, is largely going to reflect, you know, the effort and the effort and the effectiveness with which you approached your tasks. The other, the other point you're bringing up is that range of like volatility and your ability to mm. understand and experience like the stresses that happen from the risk. And crypto yeah. is a really unique sport because we get to experience the extreme exuberant highs and the yes. ultra rare lows. <laughs> And as, as yeah, a builder, um, you've been through it, we've been through it. You have to just have the wherewithal to say, no matter what is happening, if there is interest, it's going to grow at the bottom. Yeah. And if it, there is a noise at the top, we're not going to get carried away with it. We're going to still focus yeah. on the core, which is a really unique skill set that founders yeah. like you have to execute in this space. It, you brought up Shakespeare. It, it, go yeah. for it. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, it, 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 what you're touching on there, Ryan, it, it's amazing how much 
like resilience and just ability to cope with stress is kind of a core competency. Uh, you know, a, a core competency that you need to have in this space. I think Elon Elon describes it as chewing glass and staring into the abyss. I'd say there's definitely times when that's been, uh, you know, <laughs> that's been pretty applicable. You you brought up Shakespeare comparison. You brought up Elon. You sound like you you you're super educated in terms of who is is talking in the startup space. Are there any books, either crypto or just startup in general, that you would recommend or that, that you've read that have really inspired you in the startup world? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, I, always, I always struggle to answer these questions because there's kind of, you know, like three, three or four uh, that could change on a given day on what, what I think are most significant for me. But uh, over... Over the last week or so, I've probably been thinking most about the book Sapiens, which was written by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. And it's one of those big history books that, that you know starts at kind of the beginning of civilization, progresses to right up to where we are now. But the big takeaway from it is uh, what enabled uh, you know, mankind to flourish and to get beyond Dunbar's number, which is you know the ability to only form a network with like say 150 people, is our ability to to tell each other stories, right? Uh, it's, it's stories are shared fictions that enable cooperation between large groups of people. And I think at the moment where we are in, in, uh, the crypto space, um, you know, stories are extremely important because what we're doing is we're creating new coordination mechanisms with money and money is one of the key stories and fictions that, uh, the author in Sapiens talks about. And, uh, you know, and, and, and now we, we have kind of a new form of money, uh, that is tied to you know more global trustless coordination. Trustless is a word that comes up a lot, uh, and so I think that book's been tremendously important to me in, in, in highlighting the importance of uh, every founder should focus on the story that they're telling both their team, their community, their customers, uh, and also the other thing is is one we're doing a lot of novel novel things with institutions in DeFi and crypto. DAOs are an entirely new and novel. Uh, form of institution. And what you realize when you read big history books is that none of the institutions we have around today, except for, you know, accepting like the churches are older than three or 400 years old. So everything that we, everything that we know now and take for granted, you know, like uh, federal, federal reserve banks, for example, was nothing more than a concept three or 400 years ago, uh, similar to what DAOs are now. And so it's quite amazing to think ahead, you know, what, will people be talking about in three or 400 years uh, that is a legacy of what we do now? Man, it, being in the DeFi space, it's hard to think what people will be doing more than six months. Uh, yeah, like, I know. Like, I know. Years, <laughs> so much changes. <laughs> and you brought up stories, which is a beautiful talking point and transition into Maple uh, as a protocol. And building up to Maple to what it is today, you've powered crypto-based institutions with over, to our knowledge, 70 million in under collateralized liquidity. That is a groundbreaking space that you are one of the few working on this novel solution that has new forms of risk that other people who have built DeFi projects that only account for smart contract risk haven't faced. What is the story behind that? What is the story behind the understanding of those risks? Who you chose to be those initial partners? Why you chose them? I'd love to hear you tell us from your point of view how that evolved over time. Yeah, perfect. Well, 
to 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 give a bit of an overview uh, just for the listeners of how the how the Maple protocol actually works. So uh, we have we have three key user groups. So we've got the borrowers. These are crypto native institutions. We largely serve as initial partners, market makers, and market neutral funds. So. When I say market neutral, I mean that if the price of Bitcoin or, or Ethereum doubles, uh, or if it halves, it doesn't impact the you know the operations or the profitability of these companies. They're always net neutral, so they perform arbitrage operations uh, as part of their business, and they borrow to to support and to grow those arbitrage operations. Uh, so those are the borrowers. Uh, then what they do is they would take loans from pools on Maple, and so you can think of a pool as as a kind of non custodial. Uh, non-custodial uh, smart contract, or a good analogy for it would be like an on-chain debt fund. So anyone can deposit uh, stable coins to these pools. And then by doing so, they are able to then earn a yield, which comes from the interest uh, paid by the borrowers in those pools. And then the other element that's really important to note about Maple is that uh, each of the pools has a kind of manager, and we call that uh, party a pool delegate. And so what the delegate does is they uh, they prov- they have a relationship with the borrower and they would assess uh, credit assess the borrowers and also agree and negotiate the loan terms with them uh, and they do that in exchange for a revenue share of the interest in the pool so you can then think of it as kind of a, a plat- maple is a platform for setting up these on-chain debt funds that are uh, overseen uh, by the pool delegate the way then that as you said, we manage risk, and this is really important because we're tackling under collateralized loans, is that uh, we have this concept of a staking reserve. So uh, people who are lending in the pools benefit from some additional credit enhancement, which is provided by this staking reserve. And that is uh, comprised of our our Maple token, as well as uh, stable coins. And that means that defaults would need to exceed a certain level before people who are lending in those pools would bear any risk of uh, bear any risk of loss. And so that's one of the ways that we manage risk is, is that and diversification. What's exciting in the way that you've described the protocol, thank you for outlining it to the listeners from the user's journey, is that you're also creating a new job. This pool delegate yeah. is a new type of debt manager that maybe that exists today as an underwriting company in the traditional debt world. Mm-hmm. But here you're able to take a job that would be given to someone at a bank or a major underwriter and bring yeah. them into the DeFi economy where they can get paid for yeah. something they weren't gonna they were gonna do not themselves <laughs> prior. Yes. That's really exciting to us. Does it feel like you're you're starting the seeds of a new economy? Uh, a, a new a new economy is lofty. I would love people to one day credit me with that. Uh, but I think you're entirely right that it, it is creating this new. It's creating a new job or, or a new you know, a, a new profession, uh, which is uh, on, on built on top of this platform. I would liken it. It's kind of similar to the effect of Substack on the writing economy. Like if you think about it before, previously. Uh, very good writers were bundled up in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or elsewhere, and then they, the best ones, were paid less, probably less than what they were worth, because they were subsidizing the poor ones, uh, and also then you know the economics of the firm. The firm was taking a lot of the upside. Uh, similarly, what you have is you have very talented people working at asset managers or at banks performing underwriting, and you have 
these very skilled teams who are good at managing relationships, good at credit assessment, uh, yet they're bundled up inside a bank and they're giving up a lot of the upside of the uh, upside of the relationships they manage. Well, what we've done is we've created, similar to Substack, a platform where they can go and set up uh, uh, set up an operation as a pool delegate and they then share in the revenue, which is directly proportional to the value they're creating. So currently pool delegates, on average, would get about one and a half, call it about one and a half percent of the, uh, you know, of, of the AUM in a pool. So that's going to be pretty lucrative if you can spin up a pool and then get to a billion dollars in size. Like I would think that's going to be, you know, uh, I would like to see that attract, you know, the best, the best minds from, you know, your JP Morgans, your, uh, your PIMCOs, uh, those teams who want to unbundle themselves and start to build a business of their own on top of this platform. And I think you hit hit the nail on the head with the concept that if you show me the incentives, I'll show you the behavior, which is what exactly describing how we get people to come into our DeFi world. And it sounds like you're doing what Ethereum unlocked for developers, where a brilliant developer may have been housed at a Google or a SoFi or a hedge fund today. They can go build on DeFi in a weekend and launch a new liquidity pool. You can Mm -hmm. do that for debt managers that might be at a bank today or maybe a NASA manager here, they have an yeah. actual job at that one and a half percent rate. That's serious, um, especially for the liquidity pools you have available. Uh, the pool for Mavin 11, I believe is at 20 million and one and a half percent on that is 300, 300 grand for a year's salary. That's, that's great. That is 100% of the incentive mm. for someone to leave their traditional place. Yeah, um, when, when you consider that, yeah, I was going to say when when you consider that you know con- conventional asset managers would need to hit you know three hundred million in a pool in in the traditional finance landscape, it's uh, it's pretty compelling. You know, it's an order of magnitude better. Wow, and, and smart contracts are able to do this by bringing down that capital efficiency. It's just yeah, exactly. It's like it's like we we shift we shift finance to more of a software type model. Um, or a SaaS type model where the fixed cost is embedded and then all of the cost, so the fixed cost effectively gets reduced to zero of setting up you know, a, a debt fund on one of these platforms. And then your economics then entirely become variable cost. So it's like using AWS to scale a startup, right? Like you, you now have no upfront investment uh, and it's entirely variable cost and you can scale you can scale that cost with the size of your business. So I think that's what we're seeing happen to uh, to finance now. FinTech wasn't really FinTech until blockchain. And it's such a great analogy you can make to the, the Web2 world, AWS, what it had done for brick and mortar businesses and bringing all of shopping and e-commerce online. Do you think that there are going to be blockchain-based systems or DeFi-based protocols that become large and start competing directly with FinTechs or do you see some type of merge where fintechs today will actually bring in blockchain and these protocols in the back end? Mm. I think I think it's going to be a mix. So I would say, you know, it's it's very rare for the successful incumbents in one medium to then become the dominant incumbents in a new medium. Like if you look at Walmart dominated brick and mortar retail, missed e-commerce. Um, if you look, yeah. Like that, that's probably the most obvious example. Blockbuster dominated, you know, entertainment and then, you know, 
transition gave way to Netflix uh, with a new medium being online streaming. Uh, I would say what you're going to have here is probably a mix where you'll have new, you know, the kind of the new uh, unicorns or behemoths will emerge natively within the space. And then you will have some legacy financial institutions that are able to pivot and kind of merge into the space. And that will look something like omnichannel retailing, where you have, uh, let's say, JP Morgan offers conventional financial products. And then they also, you know, increasingly adopt a full suite of, say, DeFi or other blockchain products. Uh, so that they would be your kind of your omnichannel Walmart style retailer. And then you'll have the new incumbents, which, you know, could be a compound, could be somebody else who will emerge as the kind of the native unicorns within the space that will grow in size and dominate. And, and of course, Maple embedded in that. Well, we'll <laughs> Hopefully. The unicorns. <laughs> um, and you brought up JP Morgan. Do you, do you see in your roadmap and as you look to expand where the users come from that, that are going to be the borrower side on Maple, hmm. do you see someone like a JP Morgan or some of the traditional banks or even fintech neobanks integrating Maple from the debt side? Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. I mean, we're, we're an institutional like an institutionally focused product on the debt side. Uh, we have started with crypto native companies because they have the biggest burning need, right? You have companies that have very good profitability, um, good cash flow generation, strong balance sheets, uh, but they're not able to access finance from traditional lenders because they view the space as kind of, uh, you know, same vein as like alcohol, firearms, and tobacco, right? Like it, there's just an, an embargo on dealing with it. So, uh, as, as we expand, we've seen interest from SaaS companies, from other fintech lending companies that might view us as a good way to access a good alternative uh, to, to a capital markets program, uh, a more conventional capital markets program. And so I think these companies, if, if they want to be intermediated uh, through like a JP Morgan, then JP Morgan could plug in and offer you know, uh, facilitating loans through Maple uh, as a product of theirs. They could serve as a pool delegate on the platform and then they can offer loans directly and, and they already have the underwriting expertise to offer that. Uh, so I, I see that's one of the major advantages of DeFi is that it's very easy to plug into. And similarly, it can provide a kind of savings product where people can deposit and then earn a yield, uh, you know, earn a yield from, uh, from this corporate debt. Very interesting. So the JP Morgans of the world would be doing the job but, they currently have with capital yeah, efficiency. Exactly. So they, they could do that. But what it introduces is it, it, it pushes that business model towards perfect competition, right? Where JP Morgan is actually able to be competed with quite effectively by people who might build a better front end because of the ease of plugging in. The really big difficulty is actually access to financial products today. Um, you you have to go to these uh, huge nodes, like effectively people like you know firms like JP Morgan are kind of the nodes of the traditional financial system, and they have this huge moat which is just access to the products. Uh, you know you have to go through the SWIFT system to be able to transfer money overseas, and it takes like three days. That's crazy, and it introduces so much latency into the world economy. Uh, and I think one of the interesting things about networks is when you reduce latency, you get an exponential shift in the value that can be carried or transported or you know dealt with through a network. And going going from a three day you know T plus three to a T plus fifteen seconds at the moment is uh, you know is is 
it's going to lead to, you know, it's going to lead to an exponential shift. I think it's a huge vision. Um, when this reaches a point in time where you can have a pool delegate that is willing to take the jump their own, or even if they're on the weekend setting up a new pool and they can launch it on Maple, this is going to create such a competitive marketplace where the actual, those who are employing these underwriters, these, those who act as a delegate yeah. or pool delegate today, start competing with their former employees is going to be a wild experience in the world of finance. And it goes back to the silent risk that we talked about before. Anyone who would still be at this larger company would then also be competing with their, you know, the former employees at that time. And I think as, as this expands, I'd love to hear your perspective of what you think needs to come together to make this world of DeFi debt-based lending successful and to actualize on that vision. Mm. It's two, uh, it's a couple of major things. And what we've, what we've found is that the space is desperately in need of more liquidity. So more capital that can be lent out. Um, we have, uh, you know, we, we have significant borrower demand at the moment because all of these firm, all of these crypto native firms, uh, have tremendous growth runways ahead of them. So they're, they're, they're basically capital constrained. So the limitation is how do we get more capital into the system, which will lower the weighted average cost of capital. And that creates a self-reinforcing positive cycle where then uh, companies or institutions who are already borrowing from the traditional space then start to look across and see that there's more competitive commercial terms that they can access from DeFi. And so it becomes you know this, this positive feedback loop. So how do we get more capital into the space? Well, the biggest limitation is actually, let's say you want to source it from institutions. They don't have an easy product that gets them from US dollars or like euro dollars, like some other form of fiat into crypto stable coins in a, in a very easy way that their compliance teams and their, and, and their operational teams can get comfortable with. So I think that's where companies like Circle, for example, are doing tremendous work. And as long as, as they increase their customer base, that's really one of the things that's that's been a bottleneck on uh, on lending within the space. We see we we talk to a lot of family offices, hedge funds, high net worths, um, who are all interested in in participating at say one, two, three, four, five million dollars, uh, but they just want an easy way to get access to the stablecoin so they can do so. Do you guys see yourself having a direct integration to something like CirclePay or the Circle API? or with uh, some of the fiat on-ramps like Wire to facilitate that? Or would you rather rely on those family offices going to Circle directly and then carrying over to Maple? Uh, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in removing friction from the user experience. So I would love for a, I would love to work towards a, a direct integration with those kind of parties. I think, uh, you know, I, I, as a victim you know, both a victim and a benefactor of one-click purchases on Amazon, uh, I can definitely see that it's a, you know, it's, it's a huge lever to pull in generating more usage. Uh, so yeah, direct, direct integrations all the way. I love, love to hear that. And from a user experience perspective, which is the world I'm in and from, that's what we need in the DeFi space. Mm. And, and as, this, I think as the, DeFi evolves, I was just going to say one one other element is you know exactly what you guys are doing with Teller, which is um, oracles around identity 
and risk assessment. So to the extent that that can be brought on chain, it becomes a very portable thing. You don't, you're not dependent on the wherewithals of, uh, you know, credit, credit bureaus today. And it opens up lending products. Uh, we target institutions, but it then opens up under collateralized lending products to, uh, you know, to individuals. And then also you could see a score like that. I mean, the, uh, the market cap of Moody's, Fitch, and, and S&P is obviously uh, tremendous. And uh, the ratings agency business facilitates, you know, facilitates a lot of debt, debt issuance in the traditional economy. And so to the extent that we can start to bring risk analytics uh, on chain for companies, I think that will be you know, a, a tremendous uh, step in the right direction in getting lenders comfortable with using DeFi loans, loan platforms. And this, the Moody's, the S&P's, this underpins the entire economy, these type of ratings mm. and bringing this to a stance of open competition in the same way that you described pool delegates will compete for the best risk assessed individuals. We're going to see these types of reputation credit scoring models competing open source in an innovative, yes. innovative way that ultimately benefits the end consumer or the end business, that person getting access to capital. One, one yeah. thing we... Uh, kind of a, a final question we always love to ask on the Fortune Teller podcast is if you had a crystal ball in front of you right now, what could you most confidently predict will happen in DeFi in the lending space specifically by the end of the year? So we're, we're a little bit away from it so far, but I would say that I think before the end of the year, you're going to see over a billion dollars in under collateralized loans done. And this, to put that in perspective, this is uh, you know not just across us, but across all protocols who are doing under collateralized loans. At the beginning of at the beginning of 2021, there was probably I don't know maybe 10 to 15 million that had been done on chain in DeFi in under collateralized loans. Uh, so that's yeah a, a, a factor of 100x growth uh, over the space of 12 months. So I think hopefully that that uh, gives people an indication. Of the uh, of the potential of the space, let's make it happen. Absolutely, let's get let's get under collateralized loans to a billion. Uh, thank you so much, Sid, for joining, and uh, to the audience uh, wherever you're listening to this, be sure to check out the show notes for all the links Sid mentioned in our conversation. This has been extremely exciting and enlightening to hear your story, Sid, and how you look at the debt market in DeFi. And please, for the listeners, follow us on Twitter at Useteller and join our newsletter to find out more about our upcoming episodes. Thank you, Sid, and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Really enjoyed it.